0: Sunday morning, the first Sunday of Advent, we begin a new sermon series titled Let Earth Receive Her King. We're going to focus on the theme of hope as we have been through the service. But when everything is lost, when homes and lives are destroyed by war or natural disaster, when there's seemingly no way out, we call that a hopeless situation. And that's where our text lands us today, right in the middle of what we'll see as a hopeless situation. After decades of exile, decades, years and years of exile in Babylon, the Judeans are free to return to their homeland, but they find it barren and utterly destroyed. What they thought would be a joyous homecoming ended in despair. They had told stories of this place to their children and their grandchildren, and then when they returned, the place they remembered... At this point, it's unrecognizable. So in their despair, they feel an incredible distance from God. They question whether God is even at work on their behalf. They question if God is even listening to them at all. And it's in the midst of that despair, that hopeless situation, they cry out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And the imagery of that verse gives us A picture of their longing for God, for God to be revealed, for God to intervene, for God to interject some light into their dark situation, for God to bring some hope to their circumstances. So I've titled today's sermon, Three Reasons for Hope, and we're going to be in Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 64 verses 1 through 9. Again, the Judeans, they've come back but they're wondering, where is the hope? And so we're going to walk through these nine verses, not necessarily as I always do. We're not going to really spend a lot lot of time on each verse expositionally. We're going to get an overall feel for the nine verses, and then we're going to give the three reasons that we have for hope this side of the cross. So in Isaiah 64, beginning at verse 1, what we find is that, The Judeans in a very hopeless situation, they begin by crying out in a lament, a cry, in sorrow. They're crying out to God about the situation that they find themselves in. Isaiah chapter 64, beginning at verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence as fire burns Brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things for which we did not look, you came down. The mountains shook at your presence. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you, who acts for those For the one who waits for him. So, this is their lament. God, we know you're God. We know that you act on our behalf, but right now we are in a place of utter despair. We are distraught. We don't know what to do. And then, what's interesting in verse five, their lament turns into confession. So they go from lamenting, this is the situation we're in, we don't like it, it's contrary to us, we don't want to be here, to then they realize that their sin is a big reason why they're in the place that they're in. And so they turn to not just an individual confession, but the confession of a community, saying we as a community have not followed you. Look at verse 5 you meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. So he's saying, look, God, you're good. This is who you remember. You're indeed angry, for we have what? Sin. In these ways, we continue, and we need to be saved. What a verse. You can't really build back anything when you have offended someone, when you've wronged someone, you can't build back unless you first acknowledge, come clean, confess. And here their lament is turning into a confession, and they're saying, look, we've sinned. You are righteous, you're just. We're the ones that have sinned, and we need to be saved. Verse six, but we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And you think, well, what they, you know, here's what modern philosophy and and modern living, um, modern religion would tell you. Well, they just need some self-esteem. That's the real issue. You just need to find a religion, a different religion that works for you and just gain some (laughs) self-esteem. problem is your own conscience will continue to convict you of your sin because that's how God's made you. And so you can jump around from religion to religion to religion, but at some point you're going to meet your maker. And you either meet him now in confession or you meet him in that day when he stands at judge and every man must give an account and every mouth will be stopped before the holy and just judge. Then verse seven, and there is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself up to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have consumed us because of our iniquities. Again, modern man would say, well, they just need more self-esteem. No, this is the best part, because really what they're doing is they're getting down to their ground zero and their sinful lives and their sinful heart, and they're finally coming clean. And now that they've come clean, they can begin to rebuild. You see, it's as as long as we downplay our sin, you can't rebuild from that. As long as we excuse our sin, you can't rebuild from that. As long as we run from our sin, you can't rebuild from that. As long as you make yourself feel a little bit better than those whose sin you think is worse than yours, you can't rebuild from that. But when you say, God, I have sinned and I need to be saved, That is actually a confession of what? Of hope. Because you realize that there is a Savior. He's just been waiting for you. He's been waiting for you to come clean. He's been waiting for you to come to Him. He has been waiting for you to be restored. And here they've moved from lamenting to confession. And then what happens in in your Bibles, you'll see there's a gap In between verse 7 and verse 8, there's like an extra space there in most of your Bibles. That's because the way that the Hebrew is written, there is actually a pause there. And and it's interesting because what happens between 7 and 8, the pause, it's almost like this sense of they've reached a point where they have nothing else to say. They, They don't like their situation. They've lamented their situation. But now they're confessing their sin, and they've reached this point where they have nothing more to say. But what's interesting to note before we move on about this confession is that this is a communal confession. Do you see all of the we, we, we? We have done this. It's not just I. This is a communal confession. And some of these people that are confessing the sins of their nation, they weren't even alive the generations before when Israel was persisting in sin When it was indeed that sin that caused them to be driven into exile, to Babylon. But they're saying, look, we we acknowledge our own sin. We acknowledge the sin of our fathers and our fathers before them. We realize we have been a people that have not trusted you. We have not believed you. We have been fearful. We have followed after the things of the world. And God, we're going to come clean as a people and confess our sin and ask you to do something among us as a community. Does God save the individual? Yes. Your parents' faith doesn't save you. You must have a faith of your own. But he does not save you unto an island. He saves you to be a part of the living body of Jesus Christ. He saves you to be a part of a community. And so it just made me wonder, I'm just going to throw this out as a food for thought. What maybe do we as a community need to get settled with God To move forward in the purposes that he has with us. Where have we doubted God's goodness? Where have we been grumblers or complainers? Where have we allowed fear to guide decision making processes? Where have we been hoarders of wealth instead of giving generously as the Lord has given to us? Where have we as a people stopped up the blessings of God? And what do we as a people need to come before God and say, God, we confess this before you and we need to be saved. Saved from ourselves, saved from our lack of faith, saved from our own sin as a community. And they've done that and they've reached this point where there's nothing else to say. God must intervene. God must speak now or else nothing's going to happen. They're just going to remain stuck in it. And then look what happens at verse 8. There are glimmers of hope that appear. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. You see, the whole tone changes. We are the clay, you are our potter, and all we are the work of your hand. Man, that sounds good. That kind of was like, okay, this is a cozy, feel-good verse here. God's our Father with the work of his hand. We're getting back into good stuff. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Indeed, please look. We all are your people. Now, what changes between verses 7 and then 8 and 9, or 1 through 7 and then 8 and 9? What changes here? Because the whole tone changes. The circumstances haven't changed. Their land is still desolate. Their homes are still desolate. what changes? What shifts in these verses, between these verses, That causes them to have hope again. Well, it's sure not in their own actions because they're confessing their sins. Their hope is not in themselves. And it's not in their circumstances because their circumstances haven't changed in that brief interlude. But here is the hope. The hope very clearly, and this is where we're going to focus the remainder of our time. It's in this. It sounds very simply stated but it will absolutely revolutionize the way you approach life if this settles into your heart. Their hope that is everlasting, their hope that the world cannot take, their hope that endures, their hope that will match the circumstances of life, the reason that they can look at their homeland in ruins and have hope is this. Now, don't miss the simplicity of this. Their hope is in who God is, period. Everything about this moment, this shift from 1 through 7 to 8 through 9, it has nothing to do with whether they've sinned or not that day, how righteous they feel or they don't feel. It has nothing to do with the circumstances, how contrary to them they appear to be or they're not. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with who God is. And what they do in these verses is they're reminding themselves of who God is. And it's in that that they find hope. Do not miss the, do not miss the significance of that because it is so simple. And so I want to give you three reasons for hope today because if the Israelites could find hope in their situation, in the desolation of their homeland, if they could look at that and they could find hope in the person of who God is now, how much more do we have hope this side of the cross? How much more are these things true of us? So three reasons I want to give you for hope today. Number one, reason you have for hope. And let me give you a caveat here. These are only true of you if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving the forgiveness of your sins and the filling of God's Spirit. If you are a child of God, these are absolutely true of you. They are true of you every day, every moment of every day. They never change. It's whether you choose to acknowledge them or not that makes the difference. But if you have not put your faith in Christ, these are not true of you now, but they can be before you leave here today. First reason for hope is this God is your Father. You see, for them, look at verse 8 but now, O Lord, you are our Father. Very simple statement. But when Israel was saying in the midst of their distress, You're our Father, that was all about a relationship that if you trace the history of that relationship, Their relationship with God is what set them apart from every other nation on this earth. Going back to Abraham. Abraham, you walk with me. You're mine. Your descendants are mine. Going to Egypt, let my people go. This is the land that I will give to my people. And as their father, it was all about a relationship of caring for and leading. And so, When they call out, Father God, they are reminding themselves, yes, our homeland is in shambles, but God is our Father. So we have hope. Now what about us? Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6. There are really many passages. uh, These reasons for hope. Man, I I could preach right until tomorrow. Y'all want to have an evening service? We could start now and just preach into the evening. There are so many scriptures on this. Matthew chapter 6, all the reasons for hope. Don't get excited. I didn't say we were having an evening service. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, words of Jesus. I didn't put this in the PowerPoint. I looked at it this morning, and I should have added verse 24. 24 gives you the context of the rest of this. It's so powerful. Let me just read it. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus Christ, if you believe he is God, if you believe he is Savior, if you call him Lord, he has told you you can't serve two masters. It's me or whatever else. So there's something else. Jesus says, lay it down. Follow me. In that context, then he goes to verse 25. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat Okay, why aren't we to worry? First of all, he's saying, look, you only have one master. Therefore, if I am your Lord and your master, then. see, the therefore is there for a reason. So if he is your Lord, therefore, do not worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body. What you will put on is life not more than food and the body not more than clothing. If we could live the rest of our lives in obedience to that one verse, what would that look like? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the barns. This is Jesus, a master preacher, giving an illustration to help us understand it. They they neither gather into barns, yet your heavenly what? Father. Your heavenly who? Father. Look, I don't know what your earthly father is has done or not done for you, but you have a heavenly Father who is good. And don't allow the things of this world to cast doubt on your heavenly Father. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? In other words, Jesus is going, what are you thinking? When you worry, what are you thinking? He's saying, look at the birds. Does God care for the birds? Yes, Now, why are you worrying? Aren't you more valuable than the birds? Okay, then quit your worrying. That's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. It's very confrontational, really, if we understand what he's saying here. Verse 27, which of you, by worrying, can add a cubit to a stature? Another illustration. I've always wanted to be taller, but no matter how much I worry about being taller, it's not going to happen, especially now. I'm on the downward curve. I'm only getting shorter. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Again, they're saying, look look at this. Do the lilies worry about if they're going to bloom or not? If if the Father cares for them, doesn't he care for you? Look at verse 29. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Look at verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is... Which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, ye have little faith? What's that? Kind of, I mean, Jesus is getting in our faith here. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. That's a slam. Well, that, that's a put down. To say the Gent, he's saying, If you worry about these things, you're acting like a Gentile, you're acting like an unbeliever. If you worry about these things, you're doubting your father. For your heavenly what? Father. Who? Father. Knows that you need all these things. All, all of what Jesus has said is true because of this. Your father knows what you need. Let me say that again. Your heavenly father knows what you need. And so, brother Jesus says, calm down. Trust your Father. He is good, and He knows what you need. Then, if you need something to do instead of worrying, because you can't have a vacuum, you have to have something positive to do, We've been talking about that the last few weeks. So Jesus gives us the positive direction. Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says, Quit putting your energy into worrying and seek God with all that you are. And the promises of God are that he will take care of you. All these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things sufficient for the day is its own trouble some days you may amen that louder than others right but in this passage Jesus is calling us to look at the goodness of the father and in the relationship that we have in the father and why do we have that relationship is it because of our goodness no this is so important to understand If your relationship with the Father was based on your good deeds today, you would have every reason to worry. Your relationship with the Father is based on the perfection of the Son. It is based on the faithfulness of your high priest. It is based on the one who has gone before, who has died, who has risen, who forever lives to make intercession for us. And so because my relationship with a father is based on the faithfulness of the son, then I have nothing to worry about today. My father will supply my every need. Now, here's the thing. We think we know what our need is this day, especially when things are going on in our lives that we don't want. We focus on those, and we think, God, I just need you to get this out of my life. And God's going, oh, really? Is that what you need? You're going to tell me now? how I'm supposed to run this thing called life. You see, when I was younger, I got in a car wreck when I was still living in my parents' house. I was about 17, I think. And my parents knew that I had a lead foot, and they knew that I was driving pretty fast around the streets of Dallas. In fact, Lee Payton followed me one day to the shooting range, and he asked me, he said, um, where you, where'd you learn how to drive? I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, you drive like you've been to like pursuit school, like like a cop. Like you drive tactical. I was like, Central Expressway in Dallas, Texas, man. That's where I learned how to drive. It's middle of Dallas, Texas. So I got in a wreck. It was my fault. You know what they did? They let my car sit in the driveway till I could afford to pay to fix it. They didn't bail me out. Because while I thought what I needed was my car fix, they knew I needed to learn a more important lesson. Years later, when I was in ministry and I was serving at First Baptist Dallas, and I'd walked away from the fire department, and I was a broke Bible college student, barely making enough money to live. Actually, not making enough money to live, but God provided and I didn't understand ministerial taxes, and I did my taxes wrong. I ended up do, owing $400, and to a broke Bible college student, $400 was a mountain of money. You know what my parents did? They just took care of it. Two totally different situations. I had two totally different needs. And I had an earthly stepdad who knew what I needed in both those situations. One, I needed to sit and learn my lesson. The other, I needed grace. If our earthly fathers can figure that out, how much more does your heavenly father know what you need? And if that is the case, that's our reason for hope today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, number one, you have a hope right now that the circumstances don't determine, that you have that is in your possession, that you carry about with you when you leave here today. Whatever circumstance you face, you face it understanding that God is your Father. Therefore, you have hope. Number two, the second reason is God is your potter. God is your potter. Now you may think, "Well, what in the world is that? That doesn't really seem like that fits today's world. Uh, Potter and clay, I don't quite understand that. But let's, again, look at Isaiah. Let's look at the verse, 64, verse 8. See what this concept of potter has to do with anything. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter, and all we are the work of your Now, we could go all into the book of Romans on that. I'm not going to go jump right there to that right now. But I want you to understand this concept. God is the potter. Now, for Israel, they understood that God was molding them. God spent the time in the wilderness wandering to teach them how to listen to his voice so that that next generation that was raised up could inherit the promised land. But as generations went by, they forgot God, they went into exile, and then God used the exile to teach them once again how to seek his face. And so when they're saying, God, you're our potter, their hope is that, God, you're our potter, you know what we need, and you're fashioning us, even through this exile, to once again be your people. And that was their hope. That was their hope. Now, Katie's mom My mother-in-law has actually been doing pottery for decades. She's amazing at it. And I just grabbed a couple things, a couple mugs that we had in our house to kind of illustrate this. This is kind of a smaller one that my kids like because they can get their hands around it. It's fun to drink with. This is like a, a man mug right here. It's got a good handle. It looks kind of rustic. I like drinking from that one. Right there. And then, and then this, is, this is a Katie mug. It's very, very pretty. Kind of different. Has a different handle. It fits my hand weird. It just kind of annoys me. But my wife loves it because of the shape and the look of it. And each of these were made a different way. This has a different texture. And why does it have this texture as opposed to this texture? Because the potter decided that's how she wanted it to look. Now, why is this one shaped this way with this type of glaze and not looking like this one? Because when the potter sat down, she said, this is how this clay is going to end up. Now, does this mug get up in the morning and go, I'd sure like to be a little bit more masculine? Does it do that? Does it say, I'd sure like Paul Michael to drink for me today? No, they perform the function that their master created them to perform. In your life, it is not about what the other pots around you are doing. It is about you being all that God has made you to be, realizing that God is indeed your potter. Look with me at Romans 8. I'm glad there's carpet up here. Look at Romans chapter 8 real fast. We're going to look at one passage in Romans. And in Romans 8, verse 28, it's a verse that you all know really well. But I want you to see it in the context of verses 28, 29, and 30. Verses 28, 29, and 30. Again, Romans 28, you know that one so well. We quote it. Uh, You quote it. You may even have it up in your house. And we know that all things work together for what? For good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, we know that verse. That's a great verse. But what is the good that God is promising? We know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his promise. How do you define good? Because I might define it different than God. Good for me might be different on different days, in fact. So how do you define what is good? Verses 29 and 30. Look at verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, this he justified, and he justified those he glorified. He also glorified. Now, so what is the definition of God working all things together for my good? It's right in the middle of verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. So here's the thing. Here's the point. Here's why we have hope. I have hope today because the master potter, my creator, is sitting down at the wheel. And the lump of clay called Paul Michael is, first of all, in his hands, which there's no better place to be. And in his hands, he's doing this. And he's going, let's make him a little bit more like Jesus today through this. Let's make him a little bit more like Jesus today through this. Oh, I'm beginning to see Jesus come out a little bit more through Paul Michael today. And I have a potter who knows me. And he knows everything about me. And he knows where he needs to put his hands on me. And he knows what I need to be conformed to the image of his son. And so if I will make it my joy, if I will see the reward, if I will see the value in being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, then I will be able to do what James 1 says. I will have joy even in trials because I know that my God is so good and he is so big that all he's doing through that trial is making me look more like Jesus. We have hope, number one, because God is our Father, but number two, we have hope because God is your potter. And again, it doesn't matter what the other pots around you look like. The parable of the talents. It's not about if you have five or two or one talent. It's about what are you doing with what you've been given, with who you've been made to be. You respond to the potter's touch and you be the image of Christ that he's called you to be. You can do that. But lastly, we need to move to our last thing and be done. The third reason for hope is this. We are God's people. We are God's people. Isaiah 54 Excuse me, excuse me. Isaiah 64, verse 9. Do not be furious, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. So they've acknowledged your sin. They're saying, God, don't hold your anger over us. Don't hold your wrath upon us, but forgive us. He says, indeed, please look. We are all your what? Your people. So what they have done is they have lamented their situation. Then they have confessed their sin And then they have reminded themselves of God's faithfulness, and they have called out to God, reminding God of who they are, that God, we're your people. We're the people you've chosen. We didn't make ourselves your people. You chose us. And we're reminding you that we are your people. And so the third reason for hope today is that we are God's people. And therefore, you can have hope. They had it that day, and how much more should we, this side of the cross? Look at John fifteen, our last passage. There, and then I have a, a story to bring it to a close. John chapter fifteen, Jesus is about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will be betrayed, he will be handed over, there will be a mock trial, he will be crucified, he will die on the cross for the sins of the world. And you know what was on his mind before all that happened? His disciples. Those he loved, those that followed him, and we see in the high priestly prayer, those that would believe in him, us, we were on his mind before all of that. And in John chapter 15, beginning at verse 9, I want you to really key in on the relationship terminology here. As the Father loved me, Jesus says, I also have loved you, so abide in my love. That's a relationship. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, the Father, the Son, and us. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, is that, does that mean Jesus is fickle? Like he's going to like us one day or not, depending on how we are. No, he's saying you give the evidence of friendship with me when you're walking in obedience to me. That's what he's saying. No longer, look at verse 15, do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you what? Friends. That's amazing. That the God of the universe says, you are my friend. That's a relationship. We're his people. For all things that I heard from the Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. There it is again. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Do you hear the relationship? These things I have commanded you that you love one another. How amazing is it that we are friends with God, that we are God's people? And that is not true of us because we have earned it. It is because God has chosen it to be so. That's amazing. And if we have any any fraction of humility, we'll be overwhelmed by that. If we have any regard for how deeply sinful our own hearts are, it will completely overwhelm us that God would choose to call us friend. You know, in ancient times, when a king would go to a city, um, they had walls to contend with. They had a gate to contend with. And the people in the city were overwhelmed with fear because they didn't know what this conquering king would do. Would the conquering king come in and, and, and kill and destroy the city, and make it an outpost, and bring his own people in? Or, or would he be a benevolent king? I mean, the conquerors, they had reputations, so maybe sometimes they would know. But other times, they, the people didn't really know. The, the, there's, a, there's a king outside of our city. He's besieging us. What's going to happen if he breaks through, if he conquers our city? And there would be sometimes that as the walls would be knocked down, or the gates would be burned with fire in a city, would be overtaken. There's times where a king would come in and he would just wipe everybody out. He'd take over that city, he'd make it his own and he'd bring his people there. There'd be other times where that king would come in and he would assimilate those people into his king. Now you're citizens of this kingdom. You were once a part of this other kingdom, now you're a part of my kingdom. But the people that were behind the walls when the city was being besieged, they didn't have much hope They just lived in fear and in dread because they did not know what was going to happen once the city wall was breached, once those gates were knocked down. They were at the mercy of that invading king. But you flip that around with Jesus. Because the king of the universe, here's what he did. He came and he invaded time and space. He stepped down from eternity. He invaded time, stepping into time through the womb of the Virgin Mary, and as he walked among us, here's what he was doing. He was conquering all of those things that were in opposition to us, not to come in and to defeat us, not to come in and enslave us, not to come in and slay us in that sense, but he was coming on a rescue mission to break down those walls, to bear those gates, to burn those gates, because we didn't even realize that we have been held captive by sin. We were being held captive in the city of Satan's dominion. We are being held captive in the way of this world. And what we didn't understand was we needed a king to come and tear down our walls. We needed a king to come and Burn down the gates. We needed that city that we were trapped in to be invaded. And what Jesus Christ has done is he has invaded time and space, and he has conquered all that was in opposition to us. And he looks at us as we, we stand there wondering, what is this king going to do? And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's our hope that our king has come. And he is invaded. And he has conquered. And his response to us. Is to give us hope. Is to take us who were once not a people. And to actually make us. His own people. To choose us. For himself. And to give us a name. This. Christmas season, this Advent season, we have at least three reasons for hope. Number one, if you put your faith in Christ, God is your father. Leave here today with that confidence, with that knowledge. God is the potter. He's your potter. He's making you look more like Jesus. Number three, we're his people. We're God's people. He calls us by name. He cares for us. And he has a place in heaven prepared for us. And one day, King Jesus is going to return, and he's going to look at his people, and he's going to say, it's time to go home. And that's our hope. But if you're here today and you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those aren't true of you yet. But we have a great promise in God's Word That whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What did the Judeans do? They said, we have sinned and we need to be saved. And that is what God is waiting for you to do today. God is waiting for you to say, I have sinned and I need to be saved. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior that was provided for me. And God is waiting for you to turn away from your sin and to look to Jesus by faith, trusting in Jesus who has died, who has risen, who is going to return one day to forgive you of your sins, to fill you with his spirit, to make you who are not a people, now the people of the living God. And God will begin to live his life through you, and you will have the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. I'm going to take a moment to pray and I invite you we're about to close our service I invite you to join me in, in closing your eyes and bowing your head is, is simply a way to focus in on God nothing super spiritual about this posture of prayer but just to focus and, and if you've never put your faith in Christ but you realize as I have been speaking you realize that's me I need to confess my sin and be saved tell God that by faith right now tell God say God I have sinned, I need to be saved. I believe Jesus is the Savior you provided for me. I believe Jesus died for my sins in my place. I believe Jesus rose again from the grave. And I'm asking you because of Jesus, save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit. Make me your people. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving my soul. As we continue to pray, if you're a believer of Jesus Christ and you've begun to lose hope, the affairs of this world are afflicting you, you've lost loved ones, this is your first holiday season without certain people around. There are family situations that just seem hopeless, there are situations at work, I want you to remind yourself to take God's word in your heart. Remember that you have a father who cares for you. Begin to thank God even now that you have a heavenly father who cares for you. Begin to praise him for the truth of his word. Allow God to restore hope to your heart this morning and leave here with the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you give. You, you yourself, are our hope. We look to you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.